Hi, I'm Dan Boyd. I'm Kimmy Zeiler. St. Ignatius of Loyola said, Out of gratitude and love for him, Jesus Christ, we should desire to be reckoned fools. We're seeking to discover Christ in everything, from the banal to the sublime, and this is Fools, fools for, for Christ. Christ. Hello, and welcome to Fools for Christ. Welcome back, everybody. We've got a special guest with us today. Joining us all the way from Boston College is Marcus Audie. Hello. <laughs> Marcus is a friend of both of ours from our days at UCF, yep. and uh, we've stayed in touch since then, and Mark is, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, you are studying for your PhD in philosophy at Boston College, and you are mainly focused on, is it medieval philosophy? Well, uh, that's how it was when I first came in. There's been a, there's been a bit of a change since then. I'm, I'm focusing a lot on cognitive science and on what you could say is, you know, philosophical psychology, the philosophy of the soul. Um, that's really where my focus is right now as I move into my dissertation. Are you, so going back to our days at UCF, your nickname was Aquinas. Yes. <laughs> uh, because of your ability to quote him at length. So you were, and I would imagine still are very passionate about philosophy from that period, but is that, oh, absolutely. Is yeah. that uh, passion kind of shifted at all, or is that really still where your heart is? Oh, I would say that it's just a, a, a broadening of my interest. I'm still a huge Aquinas fan. Uh, I, I teach as an adjunct at St. John's Seminary uh, in Boston. And, um, you know, I got the opportunity to teach an elective uh, last spring, and I, I taught a whole class on the philosophy and theology of Aquinas. So we started uh, with his philosophy, we were, in the, we, we were in the Summa, and then we moved on to read uh, his commentary on the Gospel of John, which was amazing. Oh, that does sound fun. <laughs> you know, uh, Pope Paul VI said that, uh, that if you haven't read the commentary on John, you're not a real Thomist. So for all you oh, Thomas out there who have not read it, who not read it, challenge issued. We expect by sundown one week from now for you to have completed that commentary. It's enormous. Uh, only, uh, in, 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 in class, we only read his book that covers the first five chapters of the Gospel of John. Okay. So, yes. Gotcha. No one will wow. fulfill your challenge. That makes it even more of a challenge. Goodness. So we've mentioned Professor Peter Kraft on here before. Uh, Kimmy and I both have read and listened to his stuff and love yeah. him. And Mark, you actually have had the opportunity to study with him. And that's right. He's a little bit of a mentor, right? Oh uh, yes, that, yes, that's right. So that's awesome. What we wanted to talk about today was objective morality, and as that's kind of the almost like the the trampoline that's going to launch us into an understanding of the really the importance of embracing, using, and pursuing a logical worldview, um, which is all rooted in having a logical God. Um, and, I mean, we see in Scripture, Christ is the Logos. And so looking at um, the Word made flesh, um, it just follows with Scripture that we need to look into what it means to be logical and understand that fully in order to better understand who God is and the order that He brings into our lives. Mark had, uh, in, in a previous conversation, you'd made to me the comment that Scripture itself could not be a prescriptive set of rules for ev like every situation that a Christian would encounter. Mm. Otherwise, it would be infinitely long. Um, <laughs> and so instead, even though there's, there's advice that uh, encourages us to, to pursue holiness, sometimes 
we need to use the gift of our reason to decide between two goods that the Lord has commanded us to do. So like taking care of the poor or taking care of your family, both of which are goods, but there will come a time when you have to choose literally between one or, or the other of those at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes the content of the moral law is uh, is to follow what prudence prescribes, right? And, and by its very nature, you know, prudence dictates what we ought to do in cases where we, well, with respect to things that we ought not always do. And that's why there can't be, you know, a set of exhaustive rules uh, covering every possible situation in life. Yeah, no, it'd get pretty long. <laughs> yeah. So... What we I think where we should start is just the what do we mean when we say that there is objective morality? So what we mean by that is that morality is the kind of thing uh, that a person can have beliefs about that are true or false. Okay, so rather than like an alternative to that would be what? Well, there there are things that you that that are merely a matter of preference. So to me. Uh, the most obvious example of that would be uh, food preferences, right? So uh, there are some people I've met, I don't understand them, but I've met some people who <laughs> say they positively do not like the taste of chocolate. They dislike it. Um, and, you know, I'm a bit argumentative as a person, so I've kind of <laughs> wanted to argue with these people, but I've never, I've, never, I've never done it, you know, because, you know, whether chocolate tastes good or not just isn't the kind of thing for which you can give reasons. You know, reason has nothing to say about it. Um, and, but morality is very different from that, right? So when it comes to morality, um, that's the kind of thing that we really are able to give reasons for oftentimes, you know? So that's why, for example, there's been entire books written about uh, whether the death penalty is just or unjust, uh, or entire books uh, written about, you know, any given moral question that you can imagine, such as, are there any conditions in which it would be permissible to lie? Um, but on the other hand, there's no books written on, you know, whether chocolate tastes good, because, you know, no such book could be written. Right. It would all be, like, would come down to, it tastes good because the chemistry works and makes me feel happy, and it might not do that for you, and that's about the end of the conversation. That's right. Like, yes. you could, I would actually... I kind of want to see you argue with someone about the taste of chocolate, um, but I know it, w it probably wouldn't really go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I would say. No, I, I don't know how I would respond. I, I actually, I think I only know one person who doesn't like chocolate. I don't think um, I know anyone who doesn't like chocolate. I know people who are allergic to chocolate, but that's a whole different story. Yeah, that is. There's plenty of people who eat things they're allergic to, or at least like things they're allergic to. <laughs> um, so rather than morality being a set of tastes like I don't we, we don't say for instance that I don't steal because I it leaves a sour taste in my mouth mm -hmm. um, we say we don't steal because either because you don't want to get caught <laughs> and then you're afraid of the consequences or which really comes down to then I wouldn't like the way it makes me feel anyway so mm -hmm. it's yeah. still kind of the same thing yeah. or this is a this is a bad thing, and it is bad for human beings to do bad actions. And before before you respond to that, Mark, I, one of the things I've done a lot of research into our wonderful generation, the millennials, and one of the things that we have the most trouble with is being able to articulate morality mm. and to be able to actually say what is good and what is bad. And I thought that was just fascinating 
that we really can't, the only way we can really describe morality in the study that was done um, <clears throat> for, through numerous uh, millennials, the only way that they could describe morality was, it's bad because I will get in trouble for it. Wow, that's shocking. And so I think this is a really important question, a really important discussion to have because there's so much more to it than that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's a whole moral theory that says that something that, that, that to say that something is bad uh, is, is just to say that it makes me feel bad. So that's, you know, a kind of um, emotivism. You know, people call it the Bouye theory of morality. So when I say stealing is bad, I'm really just saying stealing, boo, you know, stealing <laughs> makes me feel yucky or, or, or what have you. Whereas, uh, you know, giving to charity, you know, the thought of giving to charity makes me feel good, so hooray for charity. Um, but like you're saying, there, there, there is more to it than that. Although the sense of morality is very interesting. Aquinas calls our most fundamental moral sense uh, syndresis. And it is a kind of intellectual perception it, you know, it does help us to see the truth of certain moral propositions, but it is also a kind of feeling. It is ultimately a kind of inclination towards certain basic goods, um, but not because these goods will make me feel good, but because these goods are goods in a substantive, uh, you know, moral kind of sense. Okay. Um, so I don't know uh, how we wanted to segue into, into talking about that. <laughs> well, how would you how would you describe um, approaching morality that way? What would be some ways to get into that logic? Right. So what I would say is, well, one important thing to know, and I guess this is maybe uh, the heart of what I really wanted to talk about, is that you know really the structure of moral reasoning follows the same kind of structure that reasoning follows in general. Okay. Uh, in, in other domains that have nothing to do with morality. You know, so, uh, for example, we could talk about descriptive reason, the kind of reason that we use when we want to classify things or we want to analyze them by breaking them down into their, uh, into their component parts. Um, or there's, uh, so, 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 you know, the most basic principle of descriptive reason, and this applies to other domains of reason as well, certainly, would be the principle of non-contradiction, right? So just the principle that a thing can't both be and not be at the same time in the same sense. Sounds like a Hamlet monologue. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, wow, you really threw me off. <laughs> sorry, I, know, so I think that's, to me, that's one that sorry, is, um, that's like a, a great fundamental place to start because it's it shows very clearly like okay this is for you could kind of go in a number of different directions with that from kind of the objectivity of truth and therefore morality um, so for instance the uh, the law of non-contradiction I can't both be here talking at this moment in time and not be talking at this moment in time and if you just replace that phrase be here talking with anything like the color red or you know the sound of music or something like you either are at the end of the day fundamentally like in a state at a time in a mode or you are not mm -hmm. and like under that's one of those things it needs no proof it needs no explanation like it's just immediately apparent to the mind um, and it's from those basic building blocks of logic like you're saying that you begin to make moral reasoning and moral judgments 
Right. So in the domain of descriptive reason, what happens is that uh, there's all sorts of things that people debate about, people disagree about, and, and, and societies can change their minds about things over time when it comes to descriptive reason. So, for example, you know, whales used to be, uh, in ancient times, described as a fish. Nowadays, we classify them as mammals because there's you know, certain features of whales that are more salient to modern biologists that we want to classify them in this way. Um, but, the, but, but the way that descriptive reason works is that, you know, it, 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 it ultimately comes down to principles that are so abstract, uh, well, that, well, that are at a certain level of abstraction, they become indubitable. Um, same thing goes for explanatory reason, the kind of reason that we use when we want to give a kind of causal explanation. Eventually, it, it lands us in basic principles that are indubitable, so once again, non-contradiction, but also the principle of proportionate causality, the idea that, uh, that effects don't happen without appropriate causes. Right. Mm -hmm. um, now, when it comes to morality, we can see a similar structure. And this is something that Aquinas points out. This is sort of the basic structure of his natural law theory. So it goes like this. So the most basic first principle of, of, of practical reasoning, reasoning about what you ought to do, is do and pursue good and avoid evil, right? So that has the same status in practical reasoning as a thing can't both be and not be has in, in speculative domains, you know, domains that have nothing to do with practice. So that's one of those indubitable, almost like bedrock components of reasoning you were talking about. Right, so if you know what is meant by good, and if you know what's meant by evil, then you perceive that it's true that we ought to do, that we should do and pursue good and avoid evil. Okay. Um, and, at the, and so it's, it's indubitable, but it's also the foundation for practical reasoning because we can't even reason about what to do unless we accept this first principle. Just as you can't reason in a descriptive domain without accepting non-contradiction. Um, now, but, but, but the problem with this first principle is that, of course, uh, it, is, it has no content. It doesn't tell us what is good or bad. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's almost entirely empty. Um, and so because of that, there is a need for, you know, certain uh, basic goods that, that we need to apprehend so that we can know what to do and pursue. Um, and, and, and these correspond to certain primary precepts in Aquinas' theory. And these precepts are the natural law in the strict sense. You know, so some examples that Aquinas gives um, are things like you know, that life ought to be preserved, or that offspring should be educated, or that we should avoid giving offense, um, we should act reasonably, we should obey God, these are primary precepts. Um, and of course, you know, a person might object, well, those aren't evident to everybody because, well, for one thing, not everybody believes in God. Um, but what Aquinas would say to that is, 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 is something like this. These aren't principles that babies are born knowing. They're not innate in that sense. They do require, for example, certain empirical experiences. So I don't know that I ought not to harm my neighbor uh, I might not realize that unless I've encountered other people. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a need for some kind of, uh, for 
life to provide us with certain experiences before we can perceive the uh, the truth of, of these of these precepts. Um, but once again, we're kind of faced with the problem that you mentioned earlier, which is well, these precepts are so fundamental. Uh, you know, offspring ought to be educated, and we shouldn't give offense, and so on. That that you know, it's not really enough to guide our life. It's not enough. Um, and, and certainly, I mean, one problem is that sometimes these basic goods, uh, the good of life, the good of knowledge, the good of social harmony, these seem to come into conflict sometimes. So we need more specific rules. And these rules, uh, Thomas referred to as secondary precepts. These are derived from the primary precepts. And the secondary precepts basically correspond to the Ten Commandments. It's at that level of moral specificity. So don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, and so on. Would it, be, would it be fair to say that in some way, through those almost empirical human experiences of encountering the other, that even, Christian, or even, even societies that did not inherit the Judeo-Christian tradition were able to arrive at most, if not all, of those secondary precepts? Absolutely, yeah. So Aquinas thinks that the secondary precepts are accessible to ordinary people uh, upon minimal reflection. So he does think it is possible to be in error about secondary precepts, but he would expect that to be rare. Um, he thinks that it could come about through bad customs um, or by living in a highly disordered way, uh, but he wouldn't anticipate that being the ordinary case. I have another question for you too. So with these primary precepts, um, you said that they're discoverable through um, an encounter with the other. And they're something that we um, discover pretty much on our own. They're very basic. What would you say to someone who would argue that the way that they discover it is through the negative aftermath and that it's not discoverable without the negative aftermath? Oh, so a more experimental view of morality. Well, I tried this and that didn't work out, so now I, <laughs> yeah. now I know. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes we can learn about morality in that way. But I would say that when we do that, uh, what we're actually learning is we're, we're learning precepts at a different level of specificity. Uh, so we're learning what some Thomists refer to as tertiary precepts when that happens, mo most likely. Um, now, the way that Thomas describes his system, he, you know, he thinks, that, he thinks that we really can't be in error about primary precepts, except for perhaps momentarily through passion. Okay. Um, but the huge majority of moral disagreements, and there, and there are, of course, a lot of disagreements, uh, the, huge, the huge majority of these happen at the level of tertiary precepts. And what that amounts to is this. So even the secondary precepts leave a lot to be, uh, well, leave a lot unclear as far as the content mm -hmm. of morality. So we know not to steal, um, but what does stealing mean? You know, so, you know, what counts as a legitimate property right, for example, would need to be settled. Or we agree not to m murder, but not everybody agrees on what murder is. You know, so, so mm -hmm. a pacifist might think that killing in all cases is, is murder. Um, an archaic Greek might think that piracy on the high seas in, uh, isn't stealing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we need a, a greater degree of specificity. Or even beyond those kinds of more extreme examples, you know, human law, this is, this is a, something that Aquinas thinks human law and human custom provide for. One of their functions is to specify morality. So the, so the United States, for example, has to, has to decide to some degree 
what counts as stealing in our society, and provided that that the laws we make are reasonably derived are from the from the level of the secondary precepts, then those tertiary precepts that we instantiate by creating law are actually just. Hmm. Um, so we need tertiary precepts. Some examples that would appear of this in Aquinas would be um, respect for elders. He thinks that, that you can derive mm -hmm. that from uh, the law to honor your parents. Another one would be the precept to not hate uh, your neighbor. He thinks you can derive that from the precept to not murder. Okay. Um, but the tertiary precepts, he says, are not evident to ordinary people necessarily. He thinks that they're, that they're evident only to the wise. Um, hmm. So one thing that, that he seems to envision is that um, each society is sort of gifted with certain wise people um, who are able to deliver tertiary precepts uh, to their society. So kind of looping back around to the importance of reason for the Christian and for, and I would say, like a, the ability to authentically encounter God in a diversity of ways. It's not sufficient to just say, and I think that for a number of reasons, it's not sufficient for someone who really, really wants to know and love God to simply say, I'm going to memorize all of the rules and then I'll be okay. Um, but to then say, okay, I've been given the gift of this reason. I'm going to develop it as a gift from the Lord and able to better understand how to live in accord with the way he created me. Go ahead, and I'm kind of like skipping some steps here, but natural law being natural to us and being made for our, our happiness. So to the extent that we follow it, we experience life like God. Mm. And the, the avenue by which we get there is the use of our reason. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, we, so one way to describe natural law is that it's a participation in, in the eternal law. So the idea is this, is that God is the eternal law. Um, and when he creates, his reason, his wisdom, is sort of made present in new ways in the universe. Mm -hmm. And the good of things, the flourishing of things, consists in them becoming as godlike as possible. So, for example, in the case of inanimate objects, what, that, what their imitation of God amounts to is, well, they exist, uh, so in that way they are like God. But they also follow, you know, laws of, of nature, or, you know, laws of physics, we, we would call them today, um, that are rational. They, they, well, you know, things don't behave in a, in a, in a haphazard way, so they obey certain laws that are knowable by reason, although these, in, these, in, these inanimate things themselves don't know them. They, 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 they obey them unconsciously, but nevertheless, these are rational, knowable laws which they are obeying. And so they, you know, imitate, you could say, the reason of God to the extent possible for an unconscious, inanimate thing. By this, well, and by the same token, the vegetative world imitates God in its own way. It imitates God not only by existing, but also by living. And animals imitate God in their own way because, well, not only do they live, but they also have a kind of knowledge. They have knowledge of sensible particulars, and they pursue ends in a conscious way. 
And we human beings, we imitate God in, in our own way. That's, well, not only do we do what plants and animals do, we also uh, are cognizant of moral value, moral goods, um, and we pursue those. And we also have knowledge of universals, something that we, that, that we share in common with God and with the angels. So basically each, each kind of creature uh, imitates God and, and makes some kind of uh, similitude, some kind of shadow of a divine perfection present in the universe. That's the whole purpose of, of creation. You know, I mean, God, this is from the fourth Lateran Council, right? So, I mean, one common objection that you hear to God from atheists is they'll, they'll say things like, well, you know, I don't really find anything appealing in the idea of a God who created me to worship him, you know, and, 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 and you know, the Fourth Lateran Council did say that, that God created uh, for his own glory. But what people don't understand is that, well, what is glory? <laughs> and Aquinas says that glory is knowledge with praise, right? Or you could say knowledge with love. And so what we see is that, well, one way to understand the order of creation would be to say that, well, what it means to say God creates for his own glory isn't to say that God creates selfishly because, well, God is all perfect. Yeah. So he's in no need of anything a creature could supply. Um, so he doesn't create us in order to get something from us. He has no interest in receiving worship from us in that sense. Instead, he creates us in order to give something to us, which is to make us, as much as we can be, happy in the way that he's happy, and to make us perfect in some way akin to how he is perfect. Now, of course, God is infinite and we are finite. We can never be happy the way he is. We can't be perfect the way he is. Um, but nevertheless, he can give us kind of, well, strictly, you know, Perfections that are analogous to his own. Perfections that are certainly more different from him than they are similar. But nevertheless, that you can notice some kind of faint kinship. You know, that's what human reason is like. So God is omniscient. He's all wise. He knows everything immediately. He never has, has to reason to a conclusion. And so that's very different from how we know. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless we are able to know in a conscious way. We're able to know abstractions. We're able to know universals. We're able to understand in some intellectual way truths that pertain to moral value. So in those respects, there is a kind of analogical kinship. And that's the whole purpose of creation. For, for, you know, it's, it's for us to have the gift of living in a human way. And what a gift that is. The, the word that I want to go back to was participation. I think you used that, that our reason, the way we reason, is a participation in the divine reasoning or the divine wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that the, the way I've always understood that, and kind of going back to the reason God created us, not for because he needed anything, um, but in, in creating us, we participate, we share in, and we experience the, the joy, the beauty, the wonder of living like God in some finite way. 
so that's what that word participation all, like always connoted to me that this to participate in, in living and thinking this way is to accept who I was as a human and begin to live in a little way like God lives mm -hmm. yes well certainly it does connote that there's also the idea of dependence present in it so the perfections that we have are dependent on the ones that God has um, but this is, it's, it's important to come back to this, and I'm glad, I'm glad that you raised it, just because this is what the natural law is all about, right? You know, we don't want to think of it as an iteration of rules. Here are your duties. Um, it's true that these are our duties, these are our obligations, but it's also true that uh, the reason why we have these, these obligations is because, well, first and foremost, because they're good. But we can't lose sight of the fact that it is in the pursuit of the good that we do become happy. You know, it's, you know, that's what human flourishing really consists in. And you can see it in the kinds of primary precepts that Aquinas names, right? So, uh, you know, life ought to be preserved. Well, that sort of corresponds to our vegetative nature, right? Because that's what we share with plants. We share, we share life with them. Um, the idea that offspring ought to be educated the idea that uh, that there ought to be sexual intercourse, that that, that that these are pursuits of real human goods, um, you know, those of course correspond to our animal nature. Um, but he also says that we ought that that we ought to not give offense, that we ought to obey God, that we ought to act reasonably, and so on. And those correspond to goods that are specifically human. Um, those correspond to the kinds of goods that are pursued precisely by rational animals and it's in pursuing these things that uh, that we are fulfilled as people uh, as human people but it's important to realize that it's not as if these lower levels of of the self you could say uh, those things that correspond to our vegetative or, or animal nature are untouched by our rationality you know the way that human beings live is thoroughly rational, or it ought to be thoroughly rational, even, even with respect to their animal functions. So this is an example that I give to my class sometimes. I, I, I point out that, yes, eating is something that we share in common uh, with beast, but you don't eat the way that a brute animal does, right? So when you eat cereal in the morning, you don't rip open the box with your teeth and, uh, you know, and disperse the cereal all, all, all over the ground and then, you know, go down on all fours and, and lick it up from the ground. Well, I'm guilty. Depends <laughs> <laughs> on how good the cereal is. <laughs> no, but you're right. We don't do that. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we eat things in a very human way, right, with utensils and so on. And sometimes, uh, you know, we might even care about setting a mood. So we might, you know, light candles or put, you know, a vase or, and, and so on or set the table in some other way. Uh, you know, we, we cook, I mean, that's obviously, that's the most obvious example. Um, but we pursue even these animal functions in a way that is imbued with, immersed in rationality. Hmm. I love that. Uh, we've got to wrap it up now. I've, there was one thing that we mentioned when we were preparing for this that I just want to bring up to kind of close us off here. Um, we were talking about how basic this is for our understanding of logic. And um, I, I think we made an analogy of with arithmetic, with the world of math, um, two plus two equals four. And if you kind of pull a rug out from under that, all the rest of arithmetic crumbles, 
right? And this has the same basic functionality to our understanding of morality, these primary precepts, and in understanding our morality and our, our logic of being who God created us to be. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that you brought that up. So, and basically, here's what I would say to that, is that, yes, yeah, so a person might, now, a person might dispute with any of the primary precepts that Aquinas suggests, because ultimately, what the primary precepts are is really an empirical matter, you could say. So, maybe he was wrong about some of those. Maybe, maybe not all of those are so universal as he thought. That's open to debate. But... I do think we have to say that there are primary precepts that are immediately knowable. Um, otherwise, you get into a situation where you know morality is utterly ungrounded. And of course, a person might say, "Well, well morality is not objective, and, and 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 there is no ultimately grounding to it." But I just wanted to point out that any well, I would say this: any argument against a primary precept that takes the form of, "Well, who says that?" Hmm. Or you know, like you know, who says life should be preserved? Or 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 to ask why? To ask why should life be preserved? Those questions that you want to direct towards any primary precept could ju would just easily be directed towards any other, right? So, the most primary level is a take it or leave it level. Whatever those precepts are, we have to take all of them or have none of them if we're going to be logically consistent. But in the same way, other domains of reason. That, uh, that, that have nothing to do with morality necessarily, so things that are purely descriptive or purely explanatory, of those precepts, we could ask the same questions, right? So when it comes to uh, you know, the law of non-contradiction, a person could say, well, who says that's true? Or a person could say, you know, well, you know, give me a reason for the truth of the law of non-contradiction. And of course, you know, you can't prove it because it's it's something that all proofs presuppose. Um, so here's the thing is that there's no argument against moral reason as such that can't just as easily be turned around to domains of reason besides morality. So if we want to argue against moral reason and just say, well, these precepts, you know, aren't, you know, well, they don't hold because of you know, because who says, or because there's no reason for them, then ultimately, well, then there's no in-principle reason to not apply that same criticism to, uh, well, who says that effects have causes, or who says that a thing can't both be and not be. Um, so, really, I think that at the, end, at, at the end of the day, we have to choose to either accept reason or to reject it. We can't just reject moral reason. We can't just say that morality is a domain in, in which reason is not operative. So it's a package deal, and if you decide that you do not want to accept the, the moral precepts, then you may as well not accept any reasoning precepts, and the universe becomes a very weird place when that, when that <laughs> happens. Yeah, exactly, yes. It, 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 well, I mean, your life becomes absurd. Uh, you couldn't even plan your day uh, if you sincerely looked at the world that way. So, of course, nobody does. I've never met a consistent nihilist. Speak for yourself. <laughs> no, no. Well, that's, uh, that's all the time we have today. But thank you very much yeah. for joining us, Marcus. And we appreciate it. We hope you all enjoyed learning more about the foundational concepts of not only moral reasoning, but all reasoning. Yeah. Until next time. Thanks for listening, guys. God bless you all.